Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Millions of Americans have been economically impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, and the effects of this fallout are especially acute among communities of color. My guest today, Carmen Rojas, joined an organization on the front lines of fighting the systemic issues that undergird such inequities right at the onset of the pandemic, and has since worked tirelessly to advance its mission. For nearly two decades, the Marguerite Casey Foundation has provided funding and guidance for creative novel projects that tackle challenges affecting low-income families. It has invested more than 800 million in such projects, and it's unusual among philanthropies for granting funds as unrestricted general operating support. That is to say, giving grantees a high degree of freedom for how to use the money. To that end, the foundation distributed $34 million in grants in 2019, with 75% of the foundation's funds going to organizations led by Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Carmen, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you so much for having me here, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Tell me a little bit more about the foundation. I have to be honest. Well, I'm always honest, but I don't know everything, but I haven't heard of the foundation. And when I started reading about it and learning more, I'm kind of blown away, not just in terms of what it does, how important a role it's played during the pandemic, and hopefully optimistically post-pandemic as we're slowly emerging from it. So let's start there. And then I have about 10 questions or more that I want to dig into as well and unpack. Awesome. I'm ready for it. So Marguerite Casey Foundation supports leaders who have the ability to shift the balance of power both in their communities and in society towards working people and their families. I'm clear, and we as an institution are clear that low wage workers, people of color, folks who have been excluded from shaping the norms of our democracy and our economy need to be at the center of not only acting as participants or people impacted by these systems, but instead actually be the drivers of a more just democracy and a fair economy. And so what we do on a day-to-day basis is grant money to leaders overwhelmingly in local communities who have a track record of community organizing. We are one of the few foundations in this country that both funds nationally and is committed to old school organizing of talking to people and painting a picture of what's possible when our government serves us, when our economy is more in balance and fair. And so it's not surprising to me, philanthropy is one of those funny things where like, unless you are in it or adjacent to it, most people have no sense of what foundations do. I call it like the invisible actor in our day-to-day lives until you start to ask questions of like, who pays for this NPR podcast? Or Gates is a very big example. How are we thinking about the vaccine for COVID-19? Philanthropy plays a huge role in our day-to-day life. And I see it as my job as making that more visible to people who don't need to interact or don't feel like they are interacting with philanthropic institutions. Can you give me just a couple of examples or one example of the way in which the foundation was that invisible hand or that invisible actor, especially throughout the pandemic, helping to either lift people up, help them shine light where there is darkness or raise voices? 
I'm not sure if you remember, but early on in the pandemic, there was this whole story about COVID being this equalizing force, this sense that this disease was killing people equally and everybody was equally vulnerable. And it was mostly because the data was not disaggregated by race. And we saw a turn. It was like, I would maybe call it an eight-week turn where then we saw the disaggregation of data by race. And in that eight-week period, the thing that happened was that most state governments actually didn't disaggregate data by race. And we funded Ibram Kendi in a project to actually lead the disaggregation of data by race to lift up and highlight the ways that low-income people, people of color were disproportionately getting sick, being killed, not having access to care, and simultaneously on the front lines of the essential work that we needed to survive. So that is one of those ways that we as an institution were able to support work that I believe shifted a narrative of who we knew was both impacted and highlighting the ways of that impact being less equally distributed across society. And Ibram is the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. And what's interesting is that he gained more notoriety and fame for that. But to your point, he's done so much research and he's heavily entrenched in the academic world. Totally. It's just interesting, just real quick. He wrote a piece along with several other Black men about his fight with colorectal cancer. I don't know if you read that. I did, yeah. And it was eye-opening. One, I didn't realize that he had been treated for it back in 2017, but he also talked about the need to disaggregate the data and how there's a disproportional impact and effect on communities and people of color. In fact, if you're a Black man and you get a diagnosis of colorectal cancer, you have a 40% more likelihood of dying than being a white man. Sorry, I digress, no, but just again to like underscore, to it's digress. not COVID, but it's, yeah, it's not COVID, but again, it shows the inequity. Exactly right. I mean, I think that philanthropic institutions have a set of resources that are unlike any other in our society. We are endowed by people who have made their money and instead of, because our tax system is so unequal, they create institutions like ours. And historically what's happened is that these institutions stay under the thumb of the founder of the foundation. We are really unique in that the person who endowed our foundation is Jim Casey, the founder of UPS. And we haven't had sort of a family presence on our board for almost this whole entire 20 year, creating sort of a liberated model of what philanthropy looks like, where you have people who are, our board recently grew, but up until now has been like, a really interesting mix of people on the front lines of the issues confronting low-income people of color in this country and using the full weight of their expertise to govern this institution, understanding that like having discrete program areas doesn't account for the ways that if you are poor, if you are Black, Native, Latinx, API in this country, you experience a whole host of issues and that issue discretion is not super helpful actually to improving people's lives. We've been really lucky in our ability to use our philanthropic capital, treating it like risk capital, imagination capital to support leaders to innovate, to support leaders to fail, to support leaders, frankly, the ways that 
many venture capitalists talk about investing in entrepreneurs just to try things. We get to support people who believe in social change and are starting to sow the seeds of a different nation that's more inclusive of who we are truly representative of. It's interesting, and I appreciate you reminding us that the foundation was started by the founder of the UPS. And on the one hand, it was surprising to me because I would have thought, oh, it might have been founded by a technology company, but UPS in so many ways is a data-driven logistics organization because so much of what your foundation or the foundation does is deal with data and data discrepancy and the integrity of data. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's quite unique. And again, it's not top of mind. I know that it is on the edge of all of the issues you just talked about when it comes to inequality, inequity, social justice, change. But can you talk about the role of data and how important data is in that system, those systems we're talking about? We start from a place that actually understands that racial justice is the precursor to having this fair economy and just democracy. And the reason I say that is that I don't spend a lot of time trying to prove to people that racial justice matters. We as an institution are committed to that being the origin of anything that we fund and then use data to advance our grant making. So we are a learning organization and we want to know what is and isn't working. A great example might be funding work on the census in a place like Georgia, where we know that people are far undercounted. How do we understand what that means for how federal dollars are spent and actually get people engaged into a government process that they may have come to believe isn't meant to serve them? And So for us, data is one element of the story, but I'm not using it to prove that racial justice matters or that white supremacy exists or that capitalism is unfair. Those are the points of departure for us and then use data as a way to bring people along, again, into painting a picture of what's possible for us. And you have an interesting background. I mean, I know you've spent the majority of your career working for nonprofits and being incredibly generous at your time and working on behalf of others. Your PhD is in city and regional planning from Berkeley. Did I get that right? Yeah, you did. How did that prepare you for what you're doing today and the arc of your career to date? I started off talking to you about the invisible nature of philanthropy, how it's philanthropic institutions, foundations, donors inform a whole lot of our lives and many people actually don't think about them. Like when I talk to my mom about working at a foundation, I think she's still like calibrating what it means that we give out tens of millions of dollars every year. City planners for me have a similar role where they are the invisible, most powerful people in cities. And so you're an East Coaster and I'm sure you've heard the story of Robert Moses, but the story of Robert Moses and the power broker is one of having somebody who's not accountable, somebody who isn't visible to people's day-to-day life, somebody who's seen as benevolent. Philanthropy is often narrated as like a benevolent force in our society. And what I loved about learning about Robert Moses and people like them are the ways that they had disproportionate power over how we lived. And so for me, I always think about philanthropy 
as having disproportionate power over how we live, philanthropic institutions setting sort of standards and norms for how we fund our education system. And we see this a lot with new tech donors, but it's not new. It's not unique to tech donors. I think we like to, tech donors are like the easy villains in the story today, but it's been a historical truth for philanthropy and philanthropic leaders where there's capturing of social movements and capturing of movement leaders. As an amazing scholar here in Washington, Megan Ming Francis, who writes a lot about this to change our social priorities. And so studying city planning kind of helped me prepare for like the diagnostic tools of needing and wanting to be transparent and make visible of understanding power, not only as like the most charismatic and visible, but actually going back to the resources and who gets to set priorities for how our resources are spent. And in most cities, it's the city planner. Most cities in the United States is the city planner. And it really allowed me to like sharpen my eye towards what it means to actually want to be accountable, to take institutions out of the dark and into the light and lead with that warts and all. I want to go back to the, the city planners. Do you think that if we had more diversity inside of city planners and councils, you would have less segregation and less systemic purposeful or non-purposeful, but it's what we have, which is just kind of like these racial divides inside of our cities and our towns around the country? Yes. I do. I mean, I think city planners and setting these priorities, I think that there are a couple of things that are important. One is they are overwhelmingly white, but like 90% of our political leadership, it's actually really crazy when you look from the local to the states, the disproportionate representation of white people in roles that shape all of our lives. And so I do think we would have less segregation. I also think that representation isn't enough. So We can get caught in the conversation about wanting to have more people of color. And for me, it's wanting to have more people of color who are committed to racial justice and understand that racial justice is something that we can work for and towards and achieve. And so I'm always trying to look for that balance. I won't be satisfied if I don't believe that having 80% of our elected officials be people of color will automatically lead to a change in society unless those people of color and frankly, like our white brothers and sisters understand that racial justice is this thing that we have to work towards, that it's we have lived more years as a country committed to the establishment of slavery than we have working to actually integrate our communities. And most people don't contend with that on a day-to-day basis. And we really need to the indelible mark of white supremacy and racial injustice, I think, is something that we have to be able to see and have an active role in setting a new course forward. I don't think that there's an undoing. I think that every day we have an opportunity to begin again. That's the thing that excites me about this job, excites me about this moment. I do this is going to sound a little bit crazy, Aaron, but like, I do think we have a once in a generation opportunity today in this moment feels so different than any other moment coming out of the pandemic at the heels of the racial reckoning of last summer after the attack on the Capitol, that there are all of these things that have all happened to create greater light and give oxygen to some of the things that have been holding us back. And so 
I really want to be part of the group of people that helps to chart a course forward. And frankly, like in my role, act as a servant leader and resource folks on the ground who are spending 75% of their time imagining justice, imagining what justice looks like, imagining what equity and equality look like and starting to seat the ground for that in day-to-day relationships. How do you get past or teach other leaders, whether they're nonprofits or in brands or NGOs and organizations, that the numbers in terms of increasing representation and diversity in leadership and everywhere, the numbers are where you start, but that's not where it ends. Because that's what I'm hearing you say, because I often talk about how you can reconstitute and aim to reconstitute your workforce to be more diverse based on whatever metrics you set. That's fine. But then after that, what are you going to do to be more inclusive? And then after that, how do you then create a sense of belonging? And I think that's where, I'm not sure anybody's figured that out yet. I think that's the ultimate goal because I think without inclusivity and then ultimately without belonging, I think it's then hard to break down some of the systemic issues that we've been talking about with regards to injustice and racism and whatnot. Part of me hears your question as like a management question. How do I, in an organization, in a field, bring people along in the journey of belonging? I agree with you a thousand percent. I do think it is belonging. And part of it is I think that management and leadership is a sacred vocation. And I treat it as such. It's like a real gift. I spend more time internally with my team than they spend with their kids. That's true of anybody who runs an organization. You're spending eight hours a day. They're thinking about you. They're thinking about me as the leader of this organization. And I don't take that for granted. I think management is a sacred vocation. And part of that is creating room and some forms of evidence that belonging is possible. We're in a moment that some people will narrate as disaffected and disillusioned. And that means that like people who have access to power, people who have access to resources, people in positions like mine have a disproportionate burden to create evidence that belonging is possible. And it's possible without conceding. Because I think one of the things that's happened is that many leaders in my position and many leaders of color in my position have like over-moderated to like, we just have to have greater self-control as leaders of color and intimate towards like a white power structure and perform and do code switching. Like we have to do all of these things that feel like performance art to me. And that's just not the job. It's not my job. The way that I'm talking to you is the way that I talk to my staff is the way that I talk to our grant recipients, mostly because I think authenticity is a precondition to belonging, being able to help people hold people's whole selves. And that's a hard thing for us as a society, as a, a society that's trying to do something that no other society has ever tried to do, which is to bring people from all these places together in this new place, have people who were here before and were hurt in so many ways by the people who came to this new place and say, we can create a society that is just and fair and includes all of us. And so mostly it's just by being my authentic self and by leading with this idea that like, this is a sacred vocation. This job is a gift and treating it like that every day. 
it's a gift as well as I think, I'm curious what you think about this, one that requires a lot of patience as well as resilience. Because I look at my children, I have a 20 year old and a 17 year old, and I feel like it might take a full generational shift to where they're in the workforce or in positions where they can impact and be forces for good and change before we fully realize our potential as a society to be better. And it's not to say that my generation, your generation, not to say that we're bad, but we are a little broken. And I think that the next generation coming up is less broken. Now, I could have a very jaundiced view of that because in fact, I'm looking at it through the lens of two children who have the resources and a very good public school education to be able to see things with a much wider aperture than others around the country. But I'm maybe just stupidly optimistic about that. But I do feel like that next generation coming up, and not even, it's really Gen Z or whatever they call them, Gisennials or whatever, that, that <laughs> mixture. I think those are the folks who probably are going to be the most impactful and we're stage setting for them. I agree with you. And I don't think it's written yet. I do think that like, again, if we go back to the data, what we know about young white people in particular is that they believe the system is set up against them, that we haven't done a good enough job talking about the privileges that come with whiteness in this country. And this once in a generation opportunity for me feels like one of promise or peril. Either we will continue to light the planet on fire or we will sprint to remedy what we've done to this earth. Either we will contend and hold the necessary conversations that we need to have about race and injustice as a country, or we won't. We'll act like they don't exist and we'll act like they are threats to our future well-being. I am really lucky to get to teach a class at UW and I'm like you, hopelessly optimistic at just like the sheer language that young people have compared to the language that I had about who they are and what they hope for. And the place where I've actually seen it the most has been in like conversations about abolition and like abolishing the police and abolishing prisons. It's most people in my generation are like, but who is going to keep us safe? But what do we do to the bad people? There's like a whole line of questioning that I think we have. And in this class, what's been interesting is that the statement that's made instead is, isn't all life precious? And if all life is precious, how do we treat people who have done wrong? And how do we address wrong or harm done in ways that don't take away from all life being precious? And it's just like a whole other universe, Aaron, of like thinking that's so different from like, I grew up watching Law and Order. My parents are immigrants. So like they learned English watching Murder, She Wrote and Columbo. Like everything was like a series where law and order was like the way that we maintain social cohesion. And I think these young people in particular have been so led from a different place about like who we are as human beings. And this really, we have one chance at this as individuals to like do our best. And so I'm with you being both hopelessly optimistic and holding the data that we have a choice to make right now. I think that's really well said. And I'm really struck by how the foundation does not restrict or overly restrict 
the funds and the grants it provides to various organizations and community organizers. Knowing that, how is it then the application process is vetted and tracked and managed to one, make sure that the organization is doing what they say they're going to do, and two, to hold them accountable to that. And again, I do believe most people are good and most organizations are good, but obviously in life, there needs to be some level of discipline and control. So I'm just kind of curious how that's managed at the foundation level because it's so unique and so interesting. So like the organizing principle for us is that the engine of power is freedom and that in order for leaders to be able to shift power, philanthropy has to give leaders more freedom and space to lead. And that for us looks like multi-year general operating support and being super transparent about who gets how much money. The question of accountability is interesting. Like I, in this job in particular, have spent a lot of time thinking about the ways that I have felt accountable in other jobs where a funder gave me resources to do something, but then I didn't feel like they were being transparent with me about what the expectations or what the terrain was. I felt like it was pretty consistently changing outside of a small handful of funders. And so we see it as our job to be accountable to our grant recipients, to help them raise money, to support them in whatever way we can to get to this place of being able to demonstrate what this future looks like. Our application process is really short. Where You mentioned this at the beginning, like I'm 10 months into this job and we have a standing list of over 250 grant recipients across the country. We've made a shift in this year to really focus on local organizations with budgets under $5 million dollars in places where there isn't a robust funding infrastructure, places like Georgia, places like Arizona, places like Texas. And what we're trying to do in this moment is actually try to answer the question that you asked, which is for new grant recipients, how do they find us? How do we start to have a relationship with people that feels more transformative than transactional? Change takes a long time. The changes that we are seeking to make are not technical. They're really adaptive. And so I believe that there are a million ways to come to the problems caused by racial injustice in this country and want to support the millions of ways that people in their own communities are seeking to solve them. This is going to be an unsatisfying answer. We have like this whole evaluation rubric about like what people have done in the past, who was brought along in that process was did change happen or didn't it and why? But we make it the burden of our staff to act like less inspectors and investigators or brokers of institutional resources and more like sociologists or anthropologists trying to figure out what change is actually possible and how do we support it? Well, and I believe that the, I don't know, cousin or sibling to change is innovation. And That's right. You've talked about innovation in a more expansive way as it relates to the social sector. What would you say are a couple of examples recently of an innovative way or innovation at its best to help serve social issues? It's so funny. So my last organization is an organization called the Workers Lab, and we would always talk about innovation as a tool to 
build and expand power to low wage workers in this country. And it was really interesting, like who was allowed to like be in the domain of innovation. And it was like always the tech bro with a hoodie and a backpack, like in people's mind, the archetype of an innovator was that and it wasn't like the gig worker who was trying to reimagine what benefits look like. And it wasn't the retail worker that was saying, you know what, we actually need a minimum wage and to increase in retail, we need better protections for us on the front lines of interacting with people on the day to day. And so in this job, the thing that I'm always thinking about is like, who is the archetype of innovation? And there are a number of people, you know, like we just did this whole board we brought a whole bunch of new people onto our board, including Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams is the pinnacle of innovation for me, really reimagining what it means to create a picture of what is possible and have people step right into it. Step right into it by providing them services, step right into that by engaging them in ways that they have been ignored and excluded for generations in this country. She also has this incredible ability to break down incredibly complex topics into bite-sized, totally understandable terms that any layperson can understand. Exactly right. And that is a power. That in of itself is innovative because that is the innovative way of kind of rhetoric. It's not even rhetoric, it's just communication. And I think that is her greatest skill set. It's incredible to listen to her speak. And I'm like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's really tremendous. We had a board meeting on Monday and it was just like her, Rashad Robinson from Color of Change, Marisa Franco, who runs a group called Mi Gente, everybody with actual on the ground experience who's recently joined our board, all bring this thing that you're describing, the ability to imagine something in your mind and in your heart of a promise of us us as a collective of us belonging all together in the same place and to bring people along in that and to also do this other thing, which for me is a more complex thing, which is to name that in this moment, there are a set of people who are gaming the system. There are a set of people who are winning. There are a set of people who have consolidated power on the back of fear, on the back of feeling like there's not enough on the back of exclusion, to do both, to name those people who are making choices to advance white supremacy in this country and to say, you can make a choice to go that way or we can make a collective us, for me is such a powerful tool. For me, it's like emblematic of innovation, to your point. I think that that kind of work is the work that we really want to be supportive of here at Marjorie Casey Foundation. And we think about change as well. We think about technologies. And I know that you've spoken about your concerns around police surveillance technologies. And I raise that only because it's especially as we just passed the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. And so much has happened in this last year following that, including many other senseless deaths and killings of Black men, people of color. And you talk about this kind of uneven application of invasive technologies. How does that tie into the institutional challenges that you and the organization tackle? Or is it more creating more awareness and education around these types of technologies? I think it's both and. One of our grant recipients, a woman named Jackie, who runs a group here in Seattle called Surge, says it's 
25% of the job is to fight people who are actively working against the communities we serve, and 75% is actually charting a course to a better future. And I think that it's both and. When it comes to police and policing and the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, there are a couple of things that just have continued to strike me. One is that like in 2021, we've only had three days where the police haven't killed a black person in this country. And so like that is an important data point. Bring it full circle, Aaron. The second data point that's important to me is how recently we've seen a lot of reporting about the increase in crime free from the conversation about the economic precarity that people are living in in this moment. That like in cities across the country, people are suffering and we actually have offered them an incomplete solution. I don't know about you, but a $1,200 check when I've only been making $8 an hour is insufficient. A $5,000 check is insufficient. And somehow our political leaders have on the one side, not given our people enough and expected them to stay the same and safe. And that is too big of a gap. The third thing that I've been thinking on the heels of the anniversary of George Floyd, and I'm not sure if you saw this, but we put out a call to action for my peers in philanthropy called Answer the Uprising. And so the uprising was really specific. People took the street, more people than ever about anything in U.S. history, took the street during a pandemic because the police have had the power to kill Black people without accountability in this country forever, since our founding. And we wanted that to stop. But people in philanthropy and donors funded broadly across racial justice issues. So you saw like, oh, we're just going to give money to a coding academy, or we're going to support Black entrepreneurs. Those things are important, but that wasn't what the uprising was about. And somehow we have written ourselves out of the story of what's possible when we can keep each other safe. And to get to some of the root causes of what makes us unsafe today, like we know that Policing in communities of color is radically different than policing in white communities. We just, the data tells us. And somehow I fear that we might miss the opportunity to actually put our public dollars into those things that make us safe, that we do need more affordable housing. We do need more access to care. We do need equitable transportation. We need The things that probably I am imagining that you and I have access and ease to in our day-to-day lives, everybody should have that. That like imagining that somebody waking up on a street because they didn't have a place to lay their head and they're going to wake up intact is an absurd thing to imagine. And that instead of working to make living on the street easier, we should actually work to house people with our dollars, with our tax dollars we can make a choice to move money from policing to housing, to move money from policing to the type of care, both mental and physical care that we know that everybody needs to live day to day. Again, I'm like naturally, hopefully optimistic and working from a context that I'm not in denial of, but I'm working to change. Well, and I think it gets lost in the words and nuance. So one of the worst things that could ever come out was this expression or this term defund the police. And I say that because it's misunderstood. People think it's binary. It means get rid of the police. And that's not what that means. It means 
reform, reorganize, redistribute what those funds are and how they can actually impact people in, in a safer, more holistic way. And that's where I get frustrated because people live in this binary world and they don't realize that everything's on a continuum and that reform is what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. I actually do think we need to defund the police. I think you're right. This is where like the story is really important that one, we treat the police as if we don't pay for the police, that they are not a part of the public good. And we've done a poor job of saying everybody, including the black people that get killed by the police, pay for the police. Sure. Yeah. It's part of our tax dollars. And, That's yeah, right. Exactly. The police themselves treat themselves as separate from the public good separate from the accountability of a transportation agency, separate from the accountability of a housing agency. And so for me, our tax system is asking us to pay for something that is actively creating and reaping harm and violence into communities that I care about, that are a part of us. And I don't want to stand by and say that that's okay. I would posit that it's like actually on us to go the extra mile and say, defund the police, invest in housing. There is a zero in this moment. I live in Seattle where the, I'm not sure if you've been tracking, but like we committed to defunding the police by X percent. That just hasn't happened. Like we just have reorganized dollars within the police agency. And I don't think people with guns should be doing traffic stops. I don't know why that's necessary. I don't know why people with guns are going to somebody's house when somebody is having some sort of mental break or like a mental issue, an emotional issue. I don't know why people with guns are doing that. It's unconscionable to me that people with guns are surveilling protests, which should be a part of our free speech rights. It's unconscionable to me that there are so many people who are highly weaponized that we pay for to, and we tell ourselves that that's to keep us safe, but it's really to keep a small portion of us safe and keep the rest of us at bay. Yeah, but again, I don't disagree with the issues that you're raising. It's all about, and maybe it's just because this is my business, but it's all about how it's communicated in the narrative because I have friends who are and have been in law enforcement and I understand what their role is and how they also oftentimes will risk their lives and they don't know what they're coming up against when they pull someone over. At the same time, rethinking the training and the curriculum. And I don't think police, personally, I don't think police officers should be therapists and trying to provide mental health services to somebody who is about to harm themselves. That's a bad situation to be in, especially when you're armed and they're not, or maybe they are, I don't know. So it's just so complicated. At the same time, it's also kind of simple in some ways. And there's so much money on all sides in the lobbying, which I also think also contaminates and impedes our progress. Whether it's unions, whether there are special interests, we talked about, it's kind of horrendous. I think you said there's only three days in 2021 so far where a black man has not been killed by a police officer, I believe you said. And I just think about the number, I mean, we also have a gun problem in this country. As we're taping this, there's a horrific mass shooting in San Jose. And every day there is gun violence in this country. I think about the new administration's job and I think about the mountains they have to climb and all of these issues. I recognize that it's not going to be all solved, one, probably in our lifetime, sadly, and two, certainly not in the next four years. 
But I, again, the optimist in me, I'm heartened by the fact that we're having these conversations that we were not having two years ago is tremendous. But what had to happen in order for us to have these conversations is also horrendous. So it's a tough time. And listen, Carmen, first of all, I appreciate everything you do. The organization's phenomenal. And I also am very grateful that you're able to share your time with us and my listeners today. We can learn more about the foundation and your great work. What is the best way for any listener to get involved, whether it is through volunteering or through finding, providing more resources to your foundation? We are at caseygrants.org, Casey Grants on all of the social medias. The best way is actually go to our website. We have like a whole bunch of ways to collect information and profile a number of our grant recipients on our website so folks can see who we support. And also, Aaron, thank you. I really appreciated this conversation with you. Thanks, Carmen. Be well. You too. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quitkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquitkin.com. 